morning, Centennial family. Uh, now that I have your attention and that I woke you up a bit, um, you might be wondering how the first and second slide went together. Abundant life in John 3.16. No, no, no. John 13. No nerves. And the Beatles song, Revolution. Well, the song was first released in 1968. And if you look at this slide up there, if you can see it with some of the events of 1968, kind of rivals 2020, doesn't it? Half a century later, and we still haven't resolved so many of the issues. I've been thinking lately, I see this so often in missions and social justice scenarios, where the passion is ignited, and then fizzles. And I fear for our current emphasis on racial righteousness. Have we gotten started with great enthusiasm just to fizzle again? Will the passion wane? Are we going to be able to keep the revolution going? And no, I really don't intend to be talking about revolution for the next half hour. Let's tone it down and ask this question. What allows sustained effort for personal and social transformation? I think the answer can be surprisingly found in John 13. Just hours before his gruesome death, we see Jesus is still calmly teaching his disciples, both in word and in example, And I hope this morning we can ferret out the source of this abundant security that allowed him such abundant service. And having discovered it, in order to keep social change going, I think we need to apply this mindset of Jesus to our own life. What I want to do is read through some verses to get the overall picture of the story and then come back and dissect them a bit. So let's read together from John 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, verses 5 to 11 are the story of a little bit of a spat that Jesus had with Peter. Just a little disagreement. The scenario had to be really awkward because washing feet was a job for slaves. And I'm sure that the disciples were confused and embarrassed, and as usual, Peter speaks up for all of them. 
And at first he blusters, no, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, then you can't have part of me. And Peter says, then wash everything, wash all of me. And I think this confusion that we see as the Lord and Savior stripped down to complete this menial task just had the disciples very confused. But notice not a one of them offered to get up and do it. They were too embarrassed for that too. And I picture a scene in which there was a really nervous silence as Jesus finished. Let's keep reading. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Well, what did they know? I mean, they'd seen what he'd done. He had just washed their feet. Well, let's look at what Jesus knew. Now let's go back and dissect some of these verses. Jesus knew his hour had come. And on earlier times in the Gospels, it's recorded that although there was opposition, he knew his time had not come. Now he knew the hour had come. You see, Jerusalem was quite a hot spot during the Passover feast. A normal population of 100,000 probably swelled to over a quarter of a million with people coming from all over. The occupying Roman army was very much visible to make sure these crowds stayed under control because they were there both to celebrate and to agitate. Now, different factions of Jewish leaders had ideas on how to deal with Rome. And Jesus had been having more and more run-ins with the religious leaders. In fact, the Gospels tell us they were seeking means to do away with him at this time. I think Jesus could read the political and spiritual climate. I think it's fair to say he was woke. He knew the time of his death had come. So how did he respond in these final hours? In Greek, verse 1 is one long, convoluted sentence with many clauses, the type you hated to have to diagram when you were in middle school. But the main clause is simply, he loved them. Everything else hangs on that. He loved them. He loved them to the end, right through the crucifixion, wholly, completely, to a fulfillment. 
He never turned back 100%. He loved them. Now, I have to admit, I like to insert myself in Scripture, and I ask myself, how? I mean, look at who's there. There's Judas, his betrayer, sitting there all chummy with the rest of the disciples. Judas, who had no more patience, waiting for Jesus to use his popularity and his power to gather an army to overthrow the occupying Roman forces. Oh, and there's Peter. Big talk. First one to run away when the going got tough. He would publicly disavow Jesus. He loved them. This had to be more than just a warm feeling. There had to be more substance to this love. I think it's love with a sure foundation based on what he knew, which is outlined here in chapter 3, verse 3. He knew the times, but he also knew the Father had put all things under his power. He knew his power. He had come from God. This was his origin. And he was returning to God. This was his destiny. Knowing not just the times, but his power, his origin, and his destiny gave him the ability to love to the end. And I think if we know our times, understand our origin as children of God, our destiny, and the power that we've been given, we too will be able to sustain interest and action for the revolution, for the social and personal transformation we want to see. So let's unpack this. Now, we've had a lot of discussion at Centennial in the last few months, interviews, sharing resources about our times. In light of undeniable racial injustice, Pastor Maurice Cox, in an interview a month, two months ago, reminded us probably way too gently that a part of our body is hurting the African-American community in particular. Pastor Carl has been asking, how will we respond to the cries of a hurting world? Given the immensity and the deep rootedness of the problems our country and society are facing with this hurt, I wonder, are we offering a Band-Aid? Or are we willing to offer a vital life-saving organ transplant in order to affect the change that is needed? Maybe in our times, we are being asked to take on the role of a slave, to love to the end, to give 100% without self-regard. Centennial family, I think our times are asking for a sacrifice that will genuinely change our lives and our lifestyle. What if, 
we're being asked to live substantially below our means. What about foregoing or delaying career opportunities? What about welcoming new or different neighbors into the neighborhood and maybe changing up the schools our kids are attending? What if the culture of Centennial Covenant Church takes a significant shift? Where are we going to get the sustained strength and security to meet hard challenges and stay true to a course of transformation? Because I don't want to see the revolution fizzle. Well, let's look at our origin. When we put our trust in Jesus, we become children of God. We have a new origin. We say we're born again. We call him Father, Abba, Papa. We know God intimately, and suddenly his word comes alive. And he speaks to us as we speak to him. We're adopted, chosen, redeemed, rescued, forgiven. We're given wisdom and understanding. We are beloved by our Father. In this new origin, we have a new identity. And child of God surpasses every other identity I have. It doesn't negate them, but it surpasses them. My nationality, gender, socioeconomic status, my ethnicity, second to my identity as child of God. Child of God outranks what I do. Volunteer, activist, humanitarian. Being a child of God puts me in a new family. We've heard the expression, make your family proud. So before I speak, before I act, before I make a decision, I have to ask, am I representing my family well? Am I making my father proud? Am I imitating my father's love, justice, righteousness, his faithfulness, commitment? I tell you, I am personally sustained every day by the realization that I I'm a child of God. That's my origin. Rather than plowing through in my own strength, like a hamster on the wheel, I am a new creation. And you are welcome to apply whatever partial analogy to cyborgs or superheroes you want to at this point. If you work out a good one, let me know. Do we know our destiny? Jesus knew he was going to be reunited with the Father. But I tell you, our destiny involves a lot more than clouds and wings and harps in heaven. Because Jesus also taught that the kingdom of God is near us, here in our midst. We are living out our destiny now. The kingdom is here now. We are 
absolutely guaranteed this destiny by the cross and the resurrection. So this gives us a new way of reckoning time. The future. We are not just trudging along, doing the same thing in the same power over and over, maybe a little louder, maybe a little more violently. No. In our destiny in the kingdom, the future comes to meet us now, here. The promise of complete restoration, redemption, justice, and righteousness is here in our midst, incompletely, but it's our destiny. It shapes our attitudes and our actions now. It gives us active hope now. See, if you're going to marry someone, you don't mess around with somebody else. If you want to run the Rock and Roll Denver half marathon in October, you're training now. Hollywood thrives on the idea of a prince or a princess who retains their royal dignity and composure while waiting for their throne to be restored. I ask myself, and I'll ask you, family, why would we live in any way that goes against the full completion of the kingdom? Why would we live now in any way different than what we anticipate our life to be in the totally restored kingdom? Our destiny is now, and that gives me quite a sense of royal bearing of how to conduct myself because this destiny is guaranteed. It's guaranteed also because of the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, the Spirit has given us gifts to do things, but I think equally important, the Spirit is able to embed in us attitudes and security that help undergird and strengthen our service. The Spirit allows us to be creative in considering responses to our times. The Spirit gives the power that gives birth to communities and unity, despite our human bent to fragment and our human self-interest. It's a powerful gift of the Spirit that bonds of community are formed. The Spirit can help us discern what the word of God means. And I don't mean a personal what it means to me. I mean to be able to take in a multi-ethnic, global community of believers to help understand the intent of the word of God. The power that the Holy Spirit gives us is not one to dominate. It is a power to redeem The creative power of the Holy Spirit guides us in bringing out the God-intended best in a situation and in a person. 
it gives us the ability to intentionally lean into the harder path for the greater good. The Spirit gives us a power that is counterintuitive, goes against our self-interest. It can be countercultural. It can go against what everyone else is saying. The power to bring out God's best can resist the expediency of violent means. It can help us avoid imposing one authoritarian power on top of another. The spiritual power isn't the power to accrue, it's the power to become dispossessed. It's a power to risk sharing or even giving up any external power or supremacy. Jesus knew his power, and spiritual power has been granted to us. And with his power, he loved to the end. And I repeat, I think, to keep the revolution going, or to keep social and personal transformation coming, we need to bring this mindset of Jesus, an understanding of origin, destiny, and power, into our lives. I wrote for a seminary class back in 1997 in a class called Scripture, Racism, and Missions, this paragraph. I'll put it up here. I'd give up my faith, I think, when the last black American gives up his or her faith. It amazes me that despite the absurdity of slavery enforced by Christian masters and Christian theology, that there remains one black Christian in America today. It is an incredible testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit to capture a heart against all the odds temporal life throws in its way. I was fairly serious. I would give up my faith if the last black American gave up theirs. And so when I heard a dear, respected African-American friend post a video on Facebook in May saying, I'm tired. I am just tired. You bet I sat up and took notice. This is a fellow named Brandon Washington. He is the pastor of Preaching and Vision, at Embassy Church here in Denver. He has not one but two degrees from Denver Seminary, and he now serves on their board of trustees. And he has been called on extensively in the past few months to speak on race and ethnicity. So despite knowing he's tired, I call and ask for an interview too. You're tired, you're soul tired, I asked, but what sustains you? What keeps you going? And he first of all gave credit to his wife, Sherry, and his co-pastor, and his admin assistant for reining him in and keeping him sane. He called this his temporal answer. But I want to pick up the interview 
where he begins to speak to themes we've looked at today, his assurance and security in Christ. So let's listen. And I... And I can see all of the fruit that came from them, their leadership on the outskirts of society. They still influenced the culture and made changes over the last 100 uh, to 120 years. And I can, I can ascribe nothing, I can ascribe that fruit to nothing except the gospel. When I think of the gospel, I have to be mindful and have to remind people that the gospel is not just Jesus died so you can go to heaven. In fact, your husband taught me how questionable that eschatology is in general. But, the, but even if you were to set aside some of the eschatological problems with that, Jesus' death was not just you can go to heaven. Jesus died so that everything that is broken can be made whole. He died so that everything that is broken can be made whole. So if there's a rift within humanity that follows along ethnic lines, or if there, is gross, if there are gross displays of injustice, the, the effective work of Christ on the cross can be authoritatively brought to bear on that brokenness, and we can expect the same fruit, the same productiveness that we anticipate will be our eternal destiny because of what he did on the cross. We apply the effectual work of Christ to the brokenness that exists in the world. He did not, he did not just save us for eternity, but he actively confronted our hardships, our pains, and the emotional margins that we have, the discomfort that we have here in time. So the only thing that keeps me going is I know that Christ did that, and I can look at the history of the church in America and see people who believed he did it and see the fruit of their belief in his having accomplished this on our behalf. If it weren't for that, if I did not have a genuine conviction, it has to be more than a mere belief. If I did not have a genuine conviction, it would be very difficult for me to get out of bed in the morning after seeing a man die in the long drawn out manner that George Floyd died on a street in Minnesota. The other thing is, um, and I didn't say this, but there's something to be said about preaching to yourself. We're doing a series through the Psalms right now and I, and I am impressed by how often David will say, will speak to his own soul. That's convicting for me. I've never paid attention to it before, but he will, he will, he will, ask, him, he will ask himself questions. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? And then he will follow that up with reminders of the faithfulness, the, the irresistible mercy and the sacrificial willingness of the God whom he serves. And it's easy for you to imagine having to remind someone else of that message, but I'm convicted by David because he often has to remind himself of that message. So it's not just a matter of knowing what Christ has done. It's a reminder, it's a reminder for me to remind myself, say to myself what Christ has done. In fact, my sermons turn into the congregation's opportunity to get a glimpse into my devotional time. I'm preaching to them what I've had to say to myself the entire week, and they get a glimpse into that on Sunday. So this constant reminder of the goodness, the mercy, the general attributes of God 
and how far beyond the capacity of humanity they are, that's a, that's a strength for me when I'm tired. I have to say thank you to Pastor Brandon for that. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. But how badly? What will we sacrifice for it? And what will sustain us in the sacrifice? What's going to make 2020 worth more than 1968? We can't effect lasting transformation on our own strength. We lose interest. We get distracted. We are the masters of rationalizing about why we should not get involved, but if I do get involved, at least not too radically. Or else we dive in and we burn out. But if our foundation is the transforming power of the gospel, acted out when we surrender our own human abilities to the will of God, and the example of Jesus, that, brothers and sisters, can sustain us. That will give strength for serious, ongoing sacrifice. That can change the world. We need to be rooted in our origin and identity as children of God first. We need to be empowered by the Spirit of God to participate in restoration and redemption of individuals and of systems and of cultures. And we need to be confident of the outcome, our destiny, because the kingdom of God is in our midst. Let's pray. Father, on our own, we're all Peter. A lot of talk, a lot of fear, repentance, trying again. And in every step, you are patient with us. And you loved us to the end of your earthly life. And your love lasts for all of our life. We pray for ourselves as individuals, as the body of Christ, to effect change and hear the cries of hurting people. We are so grateful that you have given us ways and means of being together as a body, even if physically apart. And one of those great means, Lord, you have given us is the remembrance of your last supper, of your broken body and your spilled blood. 
Father, be with us now. I pray that each one can take these words and hear them and act on them with courage and security that comes from you. Amen.